I was acting in a show and I, I probably wasn't awfully good, but I came off and I, I was just so fed up with the way my scene had gone and I said, I could write a better play than this. Unfortunately, I was overheard by Stephen and he said, if you can write a better play than this, then I challenge you to do so. Welcome to Seven Stages, a podcast from the stage sponsored by Audible. Giants of British theatre don't come much bigger than this week's guest, Sir Alan Akebourne. 84 plays he's written, plus he's directed literally hundreds more. Since his first big hit, relatively speaking, in 1965, he's had a huge number of successes, plays that have become absolute classics, like The Norman Conquest, Absurd Person Singular, A Chorus of Disapproval, and about a third of his plays have transferred to the West End. But what's even more extraordinary about Alan is that he did all this while also bringing a legendary theatre in Scarborough to life, the Stephen Joseph, named after Alan's great mentor and the theatre's founder. In fact, there aren't many people in the theatre world so closely linked to a place and a venue as Alan is to Scarborough and the Stephen Joseph. And even after 60 years or more of acting, directing and writing, he's never really stopped. If anything, as he says in this interview, he's writing more than he ever did. When coronavirus hit, he picked up a play he'd written a couple of years ago called Anno Domino and decided to record it as an audio play to raise money for the Stephen Joseph. So Alan and his wife Heather Stoney play all the parts from teenagers to septuagenarians and are clearly having the time of their lives performing it. You can hear the play on the Stephen Joseph Theatre website for free until the 25th of June and do donate if you can. I spoke to Alan literally hours after he'd finished writing his latest play and he was on a bit of a high and I love that he can still feel that exhilaration after 84 plays and a lifetime in theatre. I think we just sort of jump straight in and we start at the shallow end, which is uh, what was the first show you remember seeing? Dry Rot, I think, was the first play I saw, which was one of the early Whitehall farces. I think the first Cooney Chapman farce, uh, which legend has it, they wrote whilst they were playing small parts in the previous show called Reluctant Heroes, and they wrote Dry Rot while they were sitting in the dressing room. So there's hope for understudies. And <laughs> they um, they weren't on till Act 3 or something, and so they, they, uh, so they sat there chatting and waiting, you know, religiously waiting, um, half in costume, half out of it. And then I think one, Ray said one day, one of them said to the other, uh, this may be apocryphal, of course. Um, I think we could write this. <laughs> and uh, so they, they sat down and wrote it. And um, the, the rest is history, because they, 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 they then wrote this extraordinary stream of successful Whitehall farces, a lot of them starring Brian Ricks, and um, uh, they, they revived the Whitehall tradition. I remember even then sitting there thinking... I'd like to write one too. So I'll follow in their footsteps. So that was that was my first introduction to, to live theatre. So did you see much theatre when you were growing up? Was that, was that something that, you know, your, your family took you to? Was that something that featured much? I was uh, lucky enough to go to a school, um, Halebury, where um, I had a... There was, there was a, one of those mad schoolmasters who, who really should have been in theatre. He'd only found himself teaching French in a, in a public school by default, really. Um, but his, his main love was theatre. And um, he produced Shakespeare plays every year and um, ambitiously sent them on tour, first of all round England and then eventually internationally. 
there was a production of Romeo and Juliet, I remember that year, and I played Peter the servant, a tiny part. But uh, we all went to Holland. We toured around Holland, provincial Holland. And then the following year, uh, this wonderful teacher, Edgar Matthews, claimed was going to be his swan song. Uh, it turned out not to be, of course, because he kept coming back like any old pro will do. Uh, and uh, he he organised another tour, this time to the United States and Canada, going over on the Queen Mary and back on the Queen Elizabeth, two classic ocean liners. And uh, it was a gas, as they say. Uh, and uh, we, he took uh, what was termed the Scottish play, and I played Macduff. Uh, so I got promoted to a larger speaking part. And I always say it was all the joy of professional touring with none of the responsibility. We were a bunch of schoolboys on a boat with uh, free food um, and an uh, endless bar. <laughs> And we got completely legless. And we arrived in New York drunk. We left New York drunk at the other end. And we, we, we had the most extraordinary time um, going around right up through the East Coast, all on a greyhound coach. And we plagued these poor Americans with our schoolboy Shakespeare, which was, <laughs> was great. Uh, and we enjoyed it. And probably, hopefully, the audience did too. Well, it's incredible that you had that opportunity and and that Edgar Matthews had that drive to get it to happen as well. I always look back on my career and say the moments you need to remember are the moments when you meet important people and if you're lucky enough to meet them in the first place and if you're clever enough then you you'll listen to them. Um, and uh, I've I've met all these uh, Edgar was one of the early ones but I've met succession of people since who've just guided my career it's just a matter of being there at the right moment uh, and uh, that's luck and then the other bit is following the advice and discerning what they tell you because a lot of people will tell you a load of nonsense but those people that matter those important salient people in your life then they will they will make sure you 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 keep on the right path well, so uh, and Ed, Edgar Matthews was was among the first and and seemed to sort of inspire that that love of theatre in you. And then you left school and pretty much immediately were you were working in theatre pretty much straight away. And not just working in theatre, but you were working with Donald Wolfit. <laughs> I know what a start. I mean, what a start to work with Wolfit. Uh, uh, that again was Edgar. He 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 pushed me towards the one professional he knew of. Uh, he he knew personally. Fortunately, I was I was cheap because <laughs> I was inexperienced, and what is more, I had been in the cadet force, so I could guarantee to stand at attention at the back of the set playing a Spanish soldier in a production of um, uh, The Strong and Lonely, non-speaking, of course. But but the the previous guy had fainted, bang in the middle of Wolfit's major speech. So uh, and you know, like a guardsman, he'd just gone down. Uh, so I I got the job, and I'm, I fortunately didn't faint, but I stood there watching that incredible actor because uh, night after night I stood to attention at the back. Um, sweltering under this Spanish uniform and watching uh, a great craftsman and he, he was he was he was by today's today's standards an enormous performer but um, watching him I thought all actors were like that um, so um, it was quite a shock when I met ordinary actors who spoke normally and without booming and and gesticulating and uh, Wolfit was actually a 
a remarkable actor, but at the end of a l line of actors, I imagine looking back that I, I might just as well have been standing behind Henry Irving or <laughs> Beerbohm Tree or one of those enormous performers. Uh, but Woolfit was in that tradition, the actor-manager for whom everybody else fell into place. And I got a taste of that when I was um, standing, waiting for him uh, as he um, moved around amongst us uh, pre-tech uh, when we were all in full costume. And um, he came along the line like a commanding officer and we, the Spanish army were all standing there uh, re reducing at attention and waiting to be inspected by the great man. And he got to me and he stared at me in my tricorn hat and ridiculous rifle and cross webbing on my cross my chest and he said oh dear you are one of those people who are unfortunate enough to look ridiculous in a hat take it off and the, the designer said but sir donald that's what they wore and he said not in this production everybody take their hats off and Everybody did, and they threw them in the air. And uh, so we were hatless, uh, we were the first Spanish hatless army. And it was all due to me and Donald Wolfitt's whim. <laughs> God, I, I, well, it, it sounds like, because quite quickly as well, you, you ended up at the Library Theatre in Scarborough. It sounds like there couldn't be two more contrasting people in some ways than Donald Wolfitt and Stephen Joseph, who you met there. Stephen Joseph was one of the giants, I must say, one of my giant mentors. I mean, the the great one, because um, I joined that tiny company without meeting him, um, uh, because he was... He, legend had it, he was, he was actually doing a coal round in, in London... Uh, delivering coal he was a massive bloke and very strong so he was he was working as a as a, a navvy in a, a, co a coal delivery system he was earning money to pay our wages um that it was the sort of bloke he was i got there so i worked on the first production which was a production i remember of um uh glass menagerie uh and um i was just stage managing it really but i kept saying Where's Stephen? Who is this Stephen man? And I was running the show in my uh, in my little cubicle. We had a makeshift theatre at the, in the Scarborough Public Library, and so I was standing in a sort of narrow lane with the, the very primitive lighting board, um, slider dimmers, which were absolutely lethal, gave you a belting shock if you didn't operate them rightly and it was en route to the ladies loo so um occasionally women would burst through and go oh i'm so sorry uh, and um so i was sitting there and suddenly this enormous bloke turned up and stood next to me so i carried on doing the show and i i I, I did a blackout on the slider dimmers, putting my arm across them and pulling them down. Uh, and then I, I, I then the next scene started and I pushed a few up again. And uh, he said, there's a better way of doing that, you know. And I said, yes, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure there is, but we, uh, we are running a show. It's a professional company, I'm sorry. Uh, and he said, if you've got a bit of wood and you put it across the, the dimmers and you, you could pull them, Put it like this, he said, and slid the, all the dimmers down. I said, sir, you've just blacked out the, the actors on stage. And he said, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and uh, he, he ran out of the door, uh, leaving me standing there with a board in 
absolute blackout and angry actors bursting through the curtains and saying, what the hell's going on? I was in the middle of my big speech. And um, I said, I'm so sorry. This great big man came in and just blacked the show out. Put, put the lights up again. Put the lights up again. Carry on with the scene. So I put the lights up again. And afterwards they said, I said, what happened? What happened? I said, this bloke, this enormous bloke came in and he just <laughs> he just suddenly took over the lighting board. And um, they said, oh, that was probably Stephen. <laughs> and that was my first meeting with Stephen. And after that, we became firm friends. He, he was a remarkable, but, uh, a remarkable influence on me. And um, he encouraged me to... Once he'd seen my acting, he he rapidly encouraged me into other areas. Firstly, my writing. And and you sort of your first commission was sort of accidental as well. It was sort of a challenge from Stephen, wasn't it? I was um, acting in a in a show, and I I probably wasn't awfully good, but I have to say, but I came off, and I I was just so fed up with the way my scene had gone, and I said. I could write a better play than this, and unfortunately, I was unfortunately I was overheard by Stephen. He said, "If you can write a better play than this, then I challenge you to do so." I said, "Right, right, okay, I'll do it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I was walking out of the door, he said, "But if you do, you have to be in it, and you have to play the lead in it." It was a very clever challenge because if I'd written a load of rubbish, I certainly would have backed off and, and refused to be in it but I wrote myself a starry part it it went on the following year in, in the summer it was called the square cat and um, I, I was drunk with power by then I am um, I was allowed to write a play which for myself to star in and that the sky was the limit so I wrote a, a, a rock and roll singer for myself singing and dancing and playing the guitar none of which I could do. <laughs> I couldn't sing and I couldn't dance and I certainly couldn't play the guitar. At the end of the, I got, th I remember, £33 in royalties, which wow. was an enormous lump sum. I mean, it was about, well, in those days, about three weeks' salary. And it was fantastic. Um, and I thought, this is great. Uh, I'll write, and so I, I offered another one. Um, and so, and Stephen... Wrote an open check, really. And uh, then Stephen finally handed me the poison chalice of directing, uh, which is, is a sure way of killing off an actor. Uh, if you, if, if he, he suddenly gets the taste of directing. Uh, so I, I, by the time I finished, Stephen had... Um, he died very early on, but by the time I, I, I had said goodbye to him, he had launched two careers for me both of them running parallel. One was directing, because I was doing an awful lot of other people's work as well as my own. And, and then gradually I merged into directing my own work. And then I got the offer to, in the late 60s to come and run the company, because uh, Stephen had by then died. Uh, and it was sort of swilling around in, in a sort of vacuum really and there was real danger of it if it not continuing in Scarborough except a gallant band of amateurs banded together and tried to keep it going and then they they only knew one director and that was me because I was I directed for Stephen so they they asked me if I'd come and run it 
Uh, and I said, yeah, well, I, I don't know if I really want to run a theatre. You know? And then I came there and uh, the challenge was, was, was just too much. Um, and we began to expand and develop, as you do. Um, and the, the repertoire got bigger and we stopped being just a summer company. And then we had uh, the wonderful debacle eventually in, in the 70s of being... Uh, rather summarily dismissed from the library by the chief librarian. Uh, and I always, I still treasure his letter saying that the rooms we were using were needed for cultural purposes. <laughs> and I remember saying to myself, gee, thanks. Uh, what do you think we're trying to do? But I think really the, the, the killing moment was that I'd written a, I'd written a play which I was going to revive this year, um, called Just Between Ourselves, which was the famous one with a car appeared on stage. And re- we were on a first floor of a library, remember, a public library in, uh, with parquet flooring and flock wallpaper. And so the the idea of presenting a, a play on in the concert room on the first floor with a real car was quite a challenge. And my stage crew, bless them, went to a scrapyard, found a car and got the guy to cut it up into bits and they they, they brought it around piece by piece uh, late one evening, um, brought it upstairs and just bolted it together and parked, no engine or no works in it, but, it, but to all intents and purposes, it was a big um, uh, <laughs> Morris Minor. So it was parked just outside the chief of librarian's office <laughs> and so i think that probably probably did it as far as he was yeah. concerned because he came up in the morning ready for a day's work and there was a damn <laughs> car parked outside his office i think the letters the letter makes a bit more sense in that context <laughs> yes it does i i don't blame him uh so we we had to find a, another home which we fortunately did um, and, and you know obviously you, you were artistic director at Stephen joseph for such a long time concurrently with this incredibly successful West End career as well and I you know I know I know Stephen died in 67 which was around the same time that relatively speaking made it into the West End your first West End hit did he see that did he sort of see the beginnings of that that wider claim he he directed it in in Scarborough um which is Stephen it was the last show of mine he actually had anything to do with uh, which was rather nice I'd I'd had a play the previous year, which is was is, was little known now, called Mister Whatnot, which had transferred from well we were working in Stoke on Trent at the time at the Victoria, put it on at the Arts Theatre. It, it got absolutely slaughtered by the press, universally bad, and uh, I I just really almost hit a brick wall and was emotionally so upset. I went to bed for a week and then I, but fortunately out of that, I'd inherited this this other huge guru in my life, a wonderful woman called Peggy Ramsey, Margaret Ramsey, who was the great author's agent at that time and represented everybody. And I'd managed to inherit her. And uh, she she had a, a firm word with me and said, come along, darling, pull yourself together. And um she found me. <laughs> she she had a client called Alfred Bradley, who was a um, who was writing children's plays for her, and uh, he also 
was a BBC drama producer in Leeds, based in Leeds, and uh, he was looking for a, a second drama producer because the work was was piling up so much. And um, so I virtually got via her through to Alfred and then found myself suddenly working for the BBC. Having turned my back on playwriting, uh, and um, so I was, but I was again within 60 miles of Scarborough. And inevitably, Stephen got in touch with me and said, fancy writing a play for next year. Um, I said, oh, God, no, Stephen, not after that. And he said, well, may I suggest, old love, you try writing an ordinary, well-made play for a change instead of your experimental nonsense, Mr. Watton, with no dialogue and a lot of mime and silent films happening on stage. And I said... Listen, I'm a I'm a young dramatist. I, I I'm I'm part of the new wave, mate. Uh, there's all sorts of big guys coming up called Pinter and Osborne and all that lot and Wesker, and I'm part of these. <laughs> I I don't want to be well made play, disgusting. Um, and he said, "Well, just have a go." And then he said, "The wisest thing he's ever said: you can't break all the rules unless you know what they are." And I said. Yeah, okay, all right, that's another challenge. So I tried to write a well-made play. And I I remember sitting up when I wasn't working at the BBC at night in the digs I was in. And the neighbourhood's cat came in and sat on my lap and her name was Pamela. And Pamela and I, between us, wrote Relatively Speaking. I still clung on to my job at the BBC because I was terrified it was going to happen again. It had turned up in the West End and everyone wanted to leap on it with a knife. And so um, I went to the first night, sat next to a woman who who didn't smile once. And, and, you know, you become obsessed with a person when you've written a play and um, everyone else was laughing around me, I'm sure, but this woman just stone-faced... And it was a great object lesson because at the end she packed up her bag to leave and spoke in fluent Portuguese or someone to someone. Uh, and I suddenly realised she didn't understand a bloody word of it. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I had a wretched first night. A short period of time after that, you had Absurd Person Singular, you had How the Other Half Loves, The Norman Conquests, Absent Friends, Bedroom Fast. I mean, it was it was just a run of really strong, really successful plays i mean question three is what's the one that really stands out the play that just sort of always at the forefront of of your memory as a favorite um well in fact it's another one that i didn't think was ever going to make it it was quite more much more recent in the year 2000 uh, we'd moved into our third home um and i'd inherited as artistic director two auditoria Uh, and um i i came up with the idea of writing a play to incorporate both auditoria on the same night. And uh, the audience not moving, uh, there's two audiences, but uh, actors running between the two. Because I, I was able to manoeuvre them that, so they were on stage at one point and then they could leave that one stage and there was enough time for them to get to the other stage because I had a stage manager pace it out specially. How long does it take you to get from the back? back of the Mac to the front of the round. So we, 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 we put them on, and then as a finale, because we, we thought uh, as, a third, as a third act, as it were, we had, them, we had the audiences coming down from both auditoria, and they went into the common foyer, 
And uh, because the players incorporated a garden fete at one point, we then had a garden fete in the foyer. I said, well, this is such a lark and it's such fun. Um, and um, my, 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 my belief, which was grounded in Stephen's belief that theatre should occasionally become an event it shouldn't just run on its own lines and you know this is when we do the our shakespeare and this is when we do our christmas show and so on and so on and plod 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 another production yeah. another production but something that makes people go oh now that sounds interesting that that sounds special what i call event theater so um i said to my executive director at the time stephen wood i said you know, this is so sad. It's kind of finished now, and it's such a popular thing. And he said, "Hang on, I, I, I I've got a hotline to Trevor Nunn, the, the National, and um, there's a chance he'll he'll come up and see them." So he he Trevor came up, bless him, and um, he came up in his rent a car, and uh, he he came to see the matinee of one and the evening show of the other. I said, "Would you like to stay in for the Garden Fate?" And Trevor said, "Yes, I would love to. I'd love to." And uh, there was. A, it was a very silly game called the human fruit machine. Three of our stage managers were doing it uh, and they spun round uh, with little bags around their necks and they, they, when they, they just dipped in at random and held up an orange or an apple or a banana. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you got a winning combination, you won a Mars bar uh, and it cost you 10p a go. And Trevor got fixated on this and he said, uh, oh yes, no. 10p, um, okay, uh, and he pulled the girl's arm and they went tick, 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 all revolved and then they they all they all came up uh, banana, apple, orange uh, and he got damn, damn then he tried again and he must have spent uh, 10, 10p's and I, I walked behind the three of them and I said let him win, let him win so they, they, they all came up with three oranges and Trevor went absolutely berserk and he was jumping around and going, I won, I won, I won. And he, and he got his Mars bar and I, this is a guy who, who's just wrote bloody memories and cats and he must have made a million off that alone. Uh, and he's so happy about his Mars bar. Um, so we, Steve and I saw him downstairs and to his car, still clutching his Mars bar. And uh, Steve said, you think you'll... It'll do them. And I said, well, if the place didn't get him, the Mars bar certainly did. And he rang me, Trevor, a day later, and he said, I've, Alan, I've just had a board meeting and I've persuaded them to, um, to do the shows. So uh, where are we doing them? And I thought, well, Codslow was the first thought. And he said, we're thinking of doing Garden in the Olivier and um, House, of course, in the Littleton. And I said, Mikey O'Reilly. Suddenly, I was offered two enormous auditoria. That must have been my most memorable. A whole National Theatre was given over during the rehearsal time to the building of our sets. And then I remember walking out one day when I was in for the matinee uh, and walking down to the river and then turning round and all those... It was a beautiful day and all those terraces were were packed with people, best part of 4,000 people out there. And I looked up and I thought, they're all mine. <laughs> and there was this sort of moment of megalomania. And uh, it was quite extraordinary. So question four then, um, what are you working on at the moment? So I, I guess the big thing is Anno Domino, really. So t- tell me about that. The trouble with 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 not running the theatre is I've got an awful lot of spare time on my hands. 
Um, and so um, when I'm not directing, because I do, I I now do only two year two shows a year, which probably takes a couple of months of my life. But the other ten months, um, I'm really stuck. Uh, what to do? Because I'm I'm a creature of of of, of needy needy habit uh, and I just need to be writing and um, so I've been writing probably twice as many plays in the last two or three years than are done so we've probably got about three on the back burner now um, and one of them was was Anno Domino and then of course this wretched Covid thing came along and uh, Paul Robinson, the, the artistic director, said, uh, would you mind writing a, a, a short piece? We're, we're, getting, we're trying to do a series of short pieces for, for, in order to raise the profile of the theatre and maybe raise a bit of funding. And I said, um, well, I, 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 I can probably do one better than that, Paul. I, I, I can give you a whole play because I, I, you haven't read it yet because <laughs> I haven't given it to you, but Anno Domino. And do you want to have a look at it? And uh, Heather and I, Heather's my wife's keen to have a go on it and uh, we, we, we'd like to be acting together again and uh, of course I'm also I'm a bit, bit of a sound buff as as you know um, and um, I do all the soundscapes for all the my stage plays anyway uh, by I have done for the last 20 years really uh, and I've just kept ahead with the technology and I'm, I'm now using things like QLab uh, which is which is a wonderful system where you can just layer sound effects and uh, and of course for layering sound effects you can layer dialogue uh, and um, so I thought it is feasible to, I can record it on QLab and and um, so uh, and Paul went for it immediately bless him and uh, I so Heather and I started on it and we recorded it and I, I did all the sound effects and, took it and I brought back my old radio days in the 1960s it's amazing and it sounds like it just sounds like you and Heather are just really having fun as well when you were doing it yeah we were we were we were but fortunately as we speak um yesterday I finished another one <laughs> wow. a brand new one nobody's read it uh, Heather's read it that was that was the final that's the final seal of approval before i can even say i've written another one is is one other person reads it so she read it yesterday afternoon and she gave it the thumbs up so you can last for a little bit of that euphoria the new play is suddenly out uh and um so i i'm circling the the wagons to to, to start again now incredible uh work ethic <laughs> i'm very jealous um, question five what was the play that got away so uh, you know whether this was as a director something you really wanted to direct and didn't manage to or as a as a writer or even as an actor part that you wanted was there one that that just got away from you or as an audience member i should say no i nearly got away from me um i got tickets for a, a really hot show at the time which was uh leonard rossiter in um Arturo Ui. And everyone said, God, you've got to see this. It's, he's amazing. He is such a, a wonderful, manic actor and it's perfect for the show. And I turned up and all the doors were shut and hundreds of people standing on the pavement. And I said, what's happened? And they said, oh, it's been cancelled. I said, oh, shit. So I, we all went home again. So fortunately, I got a seat 
a couple of days later and I went to see it but that, that was that was an awful feeling you know you, you really were keyed up and then you go and yeah. so question six then you have an empty space you've got an unlimited budget what do you think you would stage now and I guess you know as a writer and a director and you've acted would you put your own talents to use or would you be commissioning other people? What would you sort of envisage? What my plan for the SJT was was when I was was running it as a director was was to do I think it was quite an early early version of this, but it was a site specific show. You know, a show that went on for several hours uh, and happened all simultaneously over several spaces. And the audience could come in and, and brush and join in and it wasn't wasn't just restricted to auditoriums we were using the rehearsal room we were using the bar and we were using the whatever spaces we had available and people could just wander and uh it, it all started from a, a a conceit that when this when the whole cycle started there was a one formal event happening in the main auditorium it was a, an address by someone who was so boring and it just fractured the audience completely. Uh, and uh, actors were planted in the audience and saying, you want to hear any more of this? Should we go? Uh, and they, they led groups of people out. And so the auditorium, this poor bugger playing the, playing the boring lecturer, would finish, hopefully, with, with an auditorium with nobody in it. And everybody else was led away into groups of... Uh, and... Uh, I, I didn't never develop it further than that, but that was that was I think what I'd like to do. Would you do it in? Would you do it at the SJT? Yeah, but it, it but that that assumes that they'd hand me back the theatre because I gave up directing there long ago, and I I don't think they're going to do that. <laughs> yeah, you'd need the whole building. So you'd need the keys essentially. Who is you? this mad old <laughs> bastard? Uh, because yeah. I remember I remember when House and Garden was going on, and and you know I was just riding roughshod over everybody because I was artistic director and I was the writer in residence and I was the director in residence and I didn't have anybody to question me. And I did a, I did a platform, I remember, uh, a platform show and um, somebody quite famous was coming up, Derek Jacobi, I think, somebody, and he was late and I had to go out and entertain the audience. And um, I said, um, you know, have anybody got any questions? And somebody said, what are you planning for next year? And I said, well, what I'm planning for next year, I said off the top of my head, is is um, is a show where, you know, and I described House and Garden. And as I was doing so, I was aware that the chairman of the board was sitting in the third row and his face was just a study. <laughs> when was this ever mentioned to the board? I said afterwards, <laughs> I'm sorry, mate. I just, made, I just made it up. And he said, well, it sounded interesting, but you should run it past us first. You just sort of assumed dictatorship of the, <laughs> of the SJT. Well, it worked. It worked, yeah, didn't it? Well, no one's complaining work, now. <laughs> you know, I wake up at night and think, what if it hadn't? <laughs> and then the final question, question seven, is about stuff you've seen. So what's the one show that you've seen that you'd happily watch on a loop? Yeah, it probably is an event again. Going back to the Normans, we decided to do all three in a day. So we had an 11 o'clocker and a 2 o'clocker and I think a 8 o'clocker. It was just a magical day. Uh, and I remember at lunchtime, the boys in the cast all went to play football in the park and they were playing football with the audience. And I was thinking, this is extraordinary. 
at the very end of the day, Eric said to me, um, we ought to go on and take the final curtain with them. We came on, we joined the line, and I looked out at the audience, and they, they'd all been there all day, and they were no longer an audience, and there were people with their shoes off, and their feet over the open at the side of the chair, and, you know, people just lying in each other's laps, and it was just wonderful. <laughs> I looked, I said, this is, this is a big, big love-in. And there were two people sitting in the middle who'd only booked for the last show who were sitting there with their regulation box of chocolates in their smart suits and looking very prim and upright and looking around at this debauched scene. And I was thinking, it's <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful moment. And I'd love to play this over and over again um, because it, it, it's like it's never going to happen again. Yeah. That's what I said in an interview. I, you know, it, it, all this streaming and all that, my memories are alive. You know, nothing takes the place of a live audience, does it? He's such a nice man. Have a listen to Anno Domino too, it's great fun. This podcast is sponsored by Audible, who have a huge range of audio theatre plays on their site, as well as audiobooks. One I was listening to is Alan Cumming, Legal Immigrant, which stars, as you might have guessed, Alan Cumming, as he explores his experiences of being a US citizen. It was recorded live at the Minetta Lane Theatre. Alan's such a brilliant, just bombastic performer, and the performance is full of incredible stories and loads of great songs too. You can listen for free with a 30-day trial at audible.co.uk forward slash theatre and prices start from $7.99 a month after 30 days and it renews automatically. Don't forget too you can find extensive rolling coverage of coronavirus and its effects on the theatre industry at thestage.co.uk. That's it from me. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with my next guest. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>